0: You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, it's great to see all of you, and this morning we continue our study in the book of Daniel, which is out of the Old Testament, and we'll jump into that here in just a little bit. But as I was preparing for our time in Daniel chapter 8, I was reminded of something um, from my childhood many, many years ago. Um, and as I begin to tell you that story, um, I just, I, I just want to share with you that this, this really is a special morning for me because at the heart of this story are my aunt and uncle and um, their kids. And technically, we're not related by blood, but we are so very much family. I have grown up with these family friends, calling them aunt and uncle, and they often... well, we're just, we've just lived in p- different parts of the country, really, our whole lives, and so it's been rare occasions when our families have been able to get together, but we've still been very bonded, and whenever they've been able to come into town or we've been able to get to them, it's just been rich. You know, you just pick up where you left off, and they're just dear friends, and really they are family, and uh, they've never heard me preach before, live. They've, they've heard over podcast or internet, like folks will, um, with this message, but they've never actually been able to hear me preach, and, and for some time they've said, we're going to come, we're going to come, and it's, it's really a great effort for, their, for them to come, and I'm so pleased to tell you they're here this morning. My aunt and uncle, for the first time live, are going to be able to hear me preach, so Aunt Pat and Uncle Jess, I love you, so glad that you're here. And my folks came with them, my, my folks live on the other side of town, it's very difficult for them to get here as well, and they're here too, so this is a very rich, rich morning for me, and I'm, you can tell I'm not just a little proud of my family, right? I, I love them, and I'm very glad they're here. And being with them and really preparing for this morning takes me back many years ago. Like I mentioned to my childhood, Um, my family and I, we moved around every four to five years because my dad was a construction superintendent. So wherever he had a job was where we would land for four to five years till that job was done. And we were in bend in this season of our lives. I was uh, the ripe old age of a second grader. Um, when we were in this season of life and my Aunt Pat and Uncle Jess and their kids came into town and I idolized my cousins, especially the boys. There there were two boys and a girl in the family and my, my two um, cousins were significantly older than I was and they were just so cool. I just loved having them around. And in Bend, in this season of life, we lived... Uh, in this home that literally opened up onto a baseball field. I mean, it was just outstanding. That's where I learned how to play baseball. And right next to this baseball field was this park. So literally, you know, it was like a 30-second walk to this park, which was just incredible for a second grader growing up. You know, just being able to go over there, it just felt like my backyard. Well, all that being said, there was this bully who lived in our neighborhood. And he moved in our neighborhood, evidently not long after we did, And this kid really had it out for me. He was about three or four grades older than I was. And I tried to make myself scarce whenever he was around. But somehow he always seemed to find me, especially when I was over at the park by myself, And this kid, he never beat me up, but he certainly intimidated me. And he kind of oppressed and controlled me in that he told me what I could and couldn't play on and what I could and couldn't do. If he wanted to swing, I had to get out of it. I mean, he was a classic bully. And so one day when my cousins and my aunt and uncle were in town with us in Bend... Um, He stole my hat when I was at the park and you'd never see this on a playground today because of the liability and someone would get sued. But back in the day, we had these monkey bar-like bars that were just there to climb on and they were really high and he climbed up these bars and put my hat at the very top and then came down, you know, just to be mean. And at that point, I had had it. So I went home crying (laughs) and went into my house and here are my two cousins. And they said, well, what's wrong? What's, what, what happened? And the, my oldest cousin, Keith, you know, heard the whole story. And he said, oh, this is so not going to end this way. He said, you come with me. <laughs> and so I went with my cousin. All of a sudden felt really big and mighty. And went with my cousin back to the park. My cousin found this kid. And this kid, well, we'll be kind. Um, he wasn't the sharpest tool in the tool shed. But he could put two and two together and realize that, My cousin was way bigger than he was, and he was looking for him. And so he jumped on his bike, tried to get away. My cousin caught up to him, made him get off his bike, made him come back, climb up the monkey bars, take the hat down, give it to me, apologize for what he had done. And then my cousin said, I want you to listen very carefully to me. I will be coming back to town. And when I do, if I hear that you have done anything to my cousin, I don't care where you are. I will come find you and things will not end well for you. Do you understand? I'm not exaggerating. I never saw that kid in our neighborhood again. I don't know what happened to him, but he never showed his face ever again. Loved my cousins and loved my aunt and uncle. Wish they came to town more often, yeah? Yeah. As we continue on in the book of Daniel today, that gives you somewhat of a flavor of what was going on in the lives of God's people. Most of us, probably all of us, have never been in exile. We've never been oppressed by someone else. We've never lived in a situation where for the long haul we're being told you can do this, you can't do that, mind your P's and Q's, on and on and on. We've never, most of us, ever been in that kind of an atmosphere and probably never will. But you need to understand that in this season of Israel's history, they were in exile in the kingdom of Babylon, and it was because of their choices that they were there. You see, if you'll remember back with me, as we think back through history, God delivered his people, the Jewish people, out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, made a covenant, made a commitment to them, and said, if you live like this, I will bless you, and I really, really want to bless you. And no one wants to bless our life and give us joy and give us favor more than God does. And so he said, this is how I want you to live. And if you will, will, I will bless you beyond what you can imagine. But if you choose to disobey me, if you choose to... Settle for brokenness. If you choose to walk away from me, I will come to you. I will call you to repentance, which simply means to turn back. I will call you to turn back to me. But if you don't, eventually you are going to force my hand and I will punish you. And this is what I will do. And he told the people, you will lose your land. You will lose your homes. You will lose everything if you force my hand. Because God is loving and God is also just. And so for 400 years, God's people disobeyed him. Over and over and over again, he sent prophets to them to tell them, you are going to force my hand. I am going to have to punish you. You are on the verge of losing everything. Why are you settling for brokenness when you could have blessing? I want to bless you. I love you. You are my most cherished possession. Please let me bless you and the people over and over again for 400 years. No, 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 no. And so God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He allowed the kingdom of Babylon, the world's first superpower, to sweep through the area, to completely obliterate the kingdom, and to take them into exile. And what Daniel 8 in the Old Testament is all about is this season of life and so through the life of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we, we, we see how God still hasn't given up on his people. He never does. And is coming back again, even when they're being punished, to call them to repentance. And so he begins to give Daniel a snapshot, a picture of the future, and to show what he's going to do for them and how he is eventually going to bring them back out of exile and, and restore them. So Daniel begins to have a series of visions. We looked at one last week, um, actually, the last two weeks, with Gary Bershears and with Matt Patrick last week. Matt and Gary, between the two of them, did Daniel chapter 7. It is the best, it's the best messages I've heard on Daniel 7. And as, as uh, Matt told you last week, most sermon series in the book of Daniel stop at Daniel chapter 6. So in many ways, we're, we're, we're driving off the map now as we continue through 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And in fairness, I think most series don't go into these chapters because they're complicated. And they're challenging and they're difficult. Because this is a form of literature now that we're into that no longer exists. And that most of us do not have a frame of reference for. It's called Apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature existed about 200 years before the life of Christ and then prevailed for another 200 years and then it began to vanish as a, as a literary form. And so it lasted about 400 years and then went extinct. So most of us don't have a frame of reference for this. So I want to give you just real quickly a primer for Daniel chapter 8, but also for this type of literature we're looking at. And then we'll go right into the chapter. As mentioned, this is an extinct form of literature, it's very predictive, it's very prophetic. It's very futuristic, and it's highly symbolic. And as we read this, you'll see these depictions of nations as animals, and it all just feels really kind of weird and outlandish. But before we go too far down the weird scale, do we use animals to represent nations and nationalities today? Well, what is the symbolic animal of our country? The eagle. What is the symbolic representation of Russia? A bear. What is the representation of China? A dragon. Not quite so weird after all, right? So, as we read this chapter, you'll see these animals that represent nations. And apocalyptic, really, one of the main focuses of it was to give God's people hope in suffering. It's always written to God's people who are suffering and hurting and struggling, oftentimes in exile, being oppressed, feeling like God has walked away when the absolute opposite is true. And again, just to equip you to read the Bible for yourself, which we're always wanting to try to do, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible, always. And in this vision we're about to see, Daniel will have this vision. An angel will will appear to him, the angel Gabriel. He will explain the vision to Daniel. He will tell us what these symbols mean and, and help us unpack some of what's being communicated here. So just again, give you a primer for what we're about to read. You're going to hear a a depiction of a ram. That ram represents the kingdom of Medio persia And you're going to hear a goat described. The goat represents Greece. And this is given to us from the angel's interpretation deeper in the chapter. So keep that in mind as we begin to read this. And this is what we're going to emphasize over and over again is the reality that what was prediction and prophecy in Daniel's day is now history for us. With the benefit of history, we can look back and see how everything that was predicted hundreds of years before it happened on the world stage played out exactly the way God said it would. It is unbelievable. Let's look at that together. So in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me, and that's the vision we looked at last week in Daniel 7. So this is a couple years later. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam, and in the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. We know exactly where these landmarks are today. This is modern-day Iraq. The Ulai Canal is now dry. It's been dry a couple thousand years, but it was a major canal in Daniel's day, so this is where this vision took place. I looked up, and there before me was a ram, and who does the ram represent? Medio Persia. Okay. With two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long, which is symbolic of power. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. We know from the benefit of history and hindsight, this is describing the rise of the Median Persian Empire. But this is the Medes now coming to power over Persia. So the strongest king was a Median king. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. As we noted earlier, Babylon is the first world superpower in in history that had conquered the known world. No animal could stand against it. None could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. And as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat, who does the goat represent? Greece, with a prominent horn between its eyes, came out from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. This idea of it not touching the ground is emphasizing that now Greece is going to conquer the known world faster than anyone before. In three years, Greece had conquered the Near East. In four, they had conquered the known world. Nothing had ever been seen like this before. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and it charged it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it. So it, this is incredibly vicious, brutal battle and it's completely one-sided. The goat is just tearing this ram to pieces. And again, more detail for us to understand. The Medo-Persians had invaded Greece a number of times. And this leader, this great horn that's being described, that came up out of Greece, is Alexander the Great. And this happened on Alexander the Great's watch. Xerxes and his father before him had invaded from Persia, and the Grecians hated the Persians for it. And so when it came to conquering them, it was brutal. None could rescue the ram from the goat's power. The goat became very great. And by the way, what was Alexander's name? Alexander the Great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the high winds of heaven. Folks, this was written 216 years before the life of Alexander the Great. And it predicts in great detail what would happen. At the age of 32, after conquering the known world, Alexander the Great unexpectedly died. Most historians believe from alcoholism he drank himself to death. His two sons were murdered, and his four generals took over power. And how many horns grew up? Four. One of them... Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Lots of detail here, but just just a few things here. Eight generations after one of those generals, one of those four generals had come to power, eight generations of kings later, Antiochus Epiphanes, history tells us, rose on the scene and he started out small. He was not the rightful heir to the throne. And how he came to the throne is about to be predicted. And when he came to the throne, the beautiful land that's being referred to is Israel. That's another biblical name for Israel. This is what happened. This horn grew until it reached the host of heavens. So symbolic language here, right? And it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. So this person is going to set themselves up against God himself. It set itself up to be great as the commander of the army of the Lord. Nothing pretentious there. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. History tells us that when Atticus Epiphanes came to power, he oppressed God's people in a way that had never been done before. It got so bad, he went into the temple, sacrificed a pig which was considered an unclean animal to the Jewish people, sacrificed a pig in order to defile the temple and then put up statues of Greek gods right in the heart of the temple to thumb his nose at God and to completely discredit and disparage God and to oppress God's people. It was awful. And this horn prospered in everything it did and the truth was thrown to the ground. I mentioned their details here about how Antiochus came to power the angel goes on now to explain what the vision means. A fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. Antiochus, because he was not the rightful successor to the throne, he got into power through manipulation, coercion, and assassination. He was never supposed to be there, but he was a master of intrigue. And that's how he became strong. And it said he would cause astounding devastation. When he came to power, when he descended on Jerusalem with his armies, he killed 80,000 people in the city of Jerusalem alone. Do you know what the population of Gresham is? About 109,000 now. Can you imagine 80% of our city being killed in a single battle? Can you imagine looking around this room and having 80% of us killed? And that's what this guy did. It it was incredible devastation that he brought with him. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, yet he will not be destroyed, yet he will be destroyed, rather, but not by human power. And how did Antiochus Epiphanes die? No one killed him. Again, remember, this was written now 315 years before this happened. He died of a broken heart. History tells us that when he tried to invade another country and his army got destroyed, and when the Jewish people were finally able to muster their strength and rise up against him, and these two events happened at about the same time, it's known as the Maccabean Revolt, The temple was restored. His army was destroyed. His other army had been destroyed. And so this man realized that his power was over and he died out of grief and remorse. What incredible detail. So really? Who cares? What difference does it make? Well, it makes an incredible difference. Because when we begin to realize that everything that was written here in the book of Daniel was all future and it played out exactly to great detail the way it was predicted to do hundreds and hundreds of years later, what does this tell us about God? This tells us that God has got the big picture. God can be trusted. He can be trusted with the big picture and he can be trusted with the details. And is this ever relevant for us today? Does it feel like our world is ever out of control? Does our country ever feel like it is spiraling out of control? I mean, just earlier this week, the the 1st of May, supposed to be a, a time of celebration. What's going on in our country? Riots. In almost every major city, our country is more polarized, more divided than ever. We've got a North Korea who we hope doesn't have nuclear weapons but might. We have Tomahawk missiles from our ships going into Syria in, in what's going on there. You know, you begin to look around the world and you go, holy God, what is going on? Things are out of control. No, they're not. Feels like it at times. But we have a God who is constantly at work even when we can't see that work. And so that's why it's so important that when we read something like Daniel, we remind ourselves all this was in the future, all this was predicted, and it played out exactly the way God said it was. How do you think it felt to the average Jew who was living in Daniel's day? They lost their homes. They lost their country. They lost the blessing of God, and many of them thought they had even lost their God. Can you imagine being them? And yet there's hope. They did not lose their God, and neither have we. God is at work. His kingdom is expanding. He is doing what he said he would do, and yes, someday he is going to come back. But boy, that's hard to cling to when you feel like God's walked out on you. You ever felt like that? Gosh, in in a room of folks this size, just, I can just guarantee there are some of you with what's going on in your life right now, the pain you're walking through, the struggle you're having, the heartache you're up against, it feels like to you God has walked out on you. And that's why it's so important that we look beyond our circumstances and we look to God's word and his promises and we remind ourselves and we remember as God has always told his people, remember, remember, remember. We remember who this God is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. He never leaves or forsakes his people. Amen? Okay, 30 of you believe that. We'll work on the rest. But yes, that's, but sometimes, in fairness, it doesn't feel like it. And that's where we anchor ourselves to what we know is true, and that's God's word and what he promises us. But when we are hurting, when we are struggling, and boy, will we see this next week when we get into chapter nine together, the longing to just get out of our circumstances. When things are hard, when things are difficult, God, when is this going to end, which Daniel will ask explicitly next week, but which at some point we're all gonna ask when we're really going through a hard thing, when's this gonna end? God actually speaks to this in this passage as well. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the uli, from the canal, calling Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And as, I came near the, as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. And he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So the bottom line is the end is coming. But in apocalyptic literature, but really even in the Bible, there are often layers to what is meant by the end. Did this mean that this was going to be about the end of the exile? Actually, no. This was talking about events that were long beyond that. In fact, Jesus himself will reach back into this passage in Matthew 24 when his disciples asked him, When is the end coming? He will reach back into this very passage. And he will take that little phrase that says the abomination that calls desolation. We haven't read it because we just don't have time to go through this whole chapter. But he'll reach back and grab that and apply that to his second coming when he's going to come back. So there are multiple, multiple ends here in this passage. And as weird as that sounds, you intuitively understand this. You get it. And I'll prove it to you. Have you been to a Marvel movie lately? Let's get more specific. Have you watched any of the Thor movies? The Iron Man movies? The Captain America movies? The Avenger movies? And Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which is just coming out, right? Oh, people, you need to get out more. (laughs) But if you've seen any of those movies, what happens at the end? It's not the end! The movie ends... And you look around, and there's all these people sitting here. What is wrong? Go home. It's credits, but it's not. What happens after the credits at all of these movies? There's another ending. Right, And it's actually a foreshadowing of what's coming in the next movie. This has changed our movie culture, and I am Exhibit A. We went to a movie here recently. It was not a Marvel movie. We're sitting there watching it, and my family's going, Dad, it's time to leave. No, 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 there's going to be something else. No, Dad, that's only Marvel movies. No, there really is going to be something. Dad, look around the theater. Everyone's left. The theater attendant's over there waiting to sweep because you won't leave. Go home. (laughs) Even I've drank the Kool-Aid. I'm waiting for the next ending. Because you understand this idea of multiple endings. And that's why it's so important when we read apocalyptic literature in the Bible that we remember it is highly symbolic and it's often layered. And the numbers that are there often are not literal numbers. And by the way, apocalyptic literature was never written to provoke timelines and to have us begin to speculate About specific dates and times, Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 and 25 that I referenced here just a little earlier, when his disciples asked, when when are things going to end? He did not give them a timeline. He gave them hope. He said, no one knows the date or the time except the Father. And that's not the point. The point is hope. And, And that's what this... This amazing book and chapter gives us this is hope. We don't know details, but what's so interesting and important to note is Antiochus Epiphanes is an archetype of evil, which means he is a representation, a symbol of a stream of tyrants just like him, who are going to come along to oppress. And make God's people suffer, and God is going to deliver his people eventually from every single one, culminating in the Antichrist, who will be the final opponent, who Jesus will defeat when he comes back a second time. So, at the heart of this is hope. And even more so, as it relates to you and me in the here and now, it means that when you are hurting, when you are struggling, when you are suffering, it will only be for a season even though it feels like forever, it's not. And the apostle Peter directly applies this in the New Testament in a letter he wrote to God's people who were suffering horrendously when he said this at the end of his letter, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast And what we all want to know is a little more detail. How long is a little while? Because I'm ready for it to be over. But sometimes a little while for us is different than it is for God because God does not measure time the way we do. In fact, in his next letter that we have of Peter's, he will say this. Don't forget this, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why has it been over 2,000 years and Jesus has not come back? Because this amazing God who is far more, infinitely more patient and loving and gracious than you and I is giving people chance after chance after chance to allow him to bless them by their choosing to turn from sin and brokenness and rebellion and to choose to turn towards him so that he can give them what they've been looking for in all the wrong places. Is that not the hope of the gospel? Why has not Jesus come back yet? Because he's giving people multiple chances And he's giving you another chance this morning to choose to believe him, to know him, and to experience him in your life. People will ask legitimately, are we in the last days? According to God's word, absolutely we're in the last days. Because the last days have been here for the last 2,000 years. Especially when you read the New Testament, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Jesus, of of Jesus was the beginning of the end for God's people and this broken world in a good way. Meaning we've been in the last days for two thousand years. Meaning God, Jesus, could come back at any time. And therefore, the real question we need to ask is not are we in the last days? The real question we need to ask is, so how should we live? in light of that reality. And Daniel tells us. It is embedded in a little phrase at the very end of this chapter. And it is hugely practical for you and me. So after this vision, this is what Daniel says. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. And then I got up and I went about the king's business. Did you catch that? He went back to work. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding how should we live we need to be about the king's business we're we are not to be setting timelines and trying to set dates we are to be living our lives every day faithfully in the ordinariness of what we would call life for God little k and capital k go about the little k king's business go to school go to work Change diapers. Live your life, but live it for the king. How you live your life matters. And so here's Daniel in exile in this foreign country, and what does he do? He goes about living his life for the Lord in exile. And in a sense, we're in exile This is not home. This world is broken. Yes, God is at work, redeeming, restoring, repairing it, and that's what we do as individuals in the church. We see where God's working and we jump right in the middle of that. But we do that with the understanding that this isn't home. Jesus is going to come back. All wrongs are going to be set right, things are going to be restored to shalom, the way God always intended them to be. But until that day comes, we go about the king's business. We live our lives, whatever we're doing each day for him. Specifically, that means we love him. We love our neighbor and our enemy. And by the way, Jesus defined our neighbor as everybody, including your enemy. And we share the hopeful gospel. I have a story I want to share with you. This is, this is the real deal. This is someone in our church family who has given me permission to share some of their story. And I'll just tell you... This is gritty. It's real, it's authentic. But I really do think this is a representation of those truths we see on the screens behind me and in this passage before us. This is what it says. When I heard the words colon cancer, I went into shock. Anguish, anxiety, and fear pounded through my veins. Panic gripped my heart and my mind as I grappled with this new reality in my life. There was not a hint of reassurance that could be found in the voice of my doctor. You should have been there when he told me it was stage 3A. Why had I worked so hard for decades to keep my weight down? Be active with daily walks and exercise? Eat a healthy diet of mostly plants and whole foods? I thought I would avoid diseases like cancer and heart disease because of my lifestyle. Little did I know at the time how helpful, though, my otherwise healthy body would heal from the surgeries I was about to have and the poison that was about to be introduced into my body. God knew these details. Scripture had come my way through others and during my time with the Lord, but quite honestly, I didn't respond to it real well at first. Yeah, yeah, I've been given that before. Give me something different. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all the same. Often went through my mind, and then I realized I wasn't ready spiritually for this battle And that was an awful reality that made my present circumstances even worse. I had cared more for the outside than the inside. A few weeks later, I learned that an acquaintance from high school had lost her five-year battle with cancer. And the news shook me to the core. Is this gonna happen to me, was what I thought. Fear rose from within. I was stuck with this disease that I could hardly say out loud, and I was gonna die from it. Images of my husband with a new wife, my grandbabies growing up without me, missing out on huge life events like weddings and births, no more travel, all that danced before my eyes. And so I contacted a friend desperate for prayer, and she told me, Journal. Journal out what God's doing as you face your mortality. And so a mind shift began to happen as I began each day to find at least one thing that I could be thankful for, and I sensed that he was encouraging me with a new way of coping. My mind and heart were now on him, and thankfulness and circumstances were no longer the focus. And then a word came for me from an author I had read, we are moving from being childlike to being mature. We're moving into a different dimension. God is still the same as he's always been. The promise is still the same. Everything is still the same it 's just that you get the sense of what it truly is about in a completely different way and then I remembered hebrews thirteen eight Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Other words of encouragement came to me. God is as good as he is holy, and when that is settled in your heart, then you can trust him in all situations. I even heard him whisper. I am your faithful God, unchanging when everything around you changes. Now, as I face my 12th and final chemo treatment, I pause. I'm excited to be done with chemo, but I would be dishonest if I didn't admit fear of what my scan may reveal. My humanness is pushing forward, but so is hope hope in a heavenly Father. Hope for a long and healthy life. Hoping to hear the words cancer-free five years from now. God has been faithful. He has teamed me with an oncologist who is positive and encouraging as well as knowledgeable. God has answered prayers. I've had minimal side effects from the chemo. God has been good. He continues to guide me spiritually to a new maturity. God is the same yesterday, today, today. And tomorrow, his words and wisdom stand the test of time. Therefore, I will be brave and I will call forth life. This morning, as we continue to worship together, communion reminds us that we can be brave with whatever's facing us because we have a god Who gives life? Communion is all about a God that can be trusted. And folks, at the end of the day, there will come times in your journey without fail. You will come to a point where you will wonder if God can be trusted. If he has left the scene, if he truly does care, why is he allowing this to happen? Why doesn't he change things? At the end of the day, you can trust a God who will die for you. And that's what communion emphasizes. That through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if you will respond to that by receiving Jesus into your life, you have life. Life and joy and hope in this life, and life and joy in the life to come. And once again, just as God did with his people back in the Old Testament, and as he's still doing today, this God is coming to you and he is asking, will you follow me? Will you trust me? And it starts with a defining moment where you choose to give him your life. And so I am gonna pray here in just a moment. And if you would like to receive this Jesus, the one true God into your life, I wanna give you the opportunity to do that. And then I'm gonna invite our ushers. They'll come forward and we're gonna serve you these elements. And i ask asked that you hold on to them Once you get them, and then we'll celebrate communion together. So would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for anyone here who is doing business with you and realizing or even questioning that they may not know you. Lord, I pray they would not let another moment go by without receiving you into their lives by just saying between you and them, Jesus, I receive you into my life. I choose to trust you starting now. And I thank you that you love me. You forgive me. You give me new life. And you will never leave me. And Lord, for those of us here who do know you, would these elements remind us of what you've done for us? You are the source of hope. You can be trusted. And yes, someday you will come back. But until you do, we choose to live for you, to be about the king's business by joining you, in the work that you're doing in our lives and in the lives of others. Thank you, God. You are so good. And thank you for this time to be with you and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.